prayer for you. If you guys want to pray with me, you're welcome to. Jesus, I thank you for um, Edson. I ask that you would um, bless him uh, to uh, declare your word. I ask that you would move through your uh, word, through scripture in our hearts. I ask that you would um, uh, move in our hearts and uh, make us sensitive to your voice, that we could respond to you. Uh, thank you, Lord, for the way you're moving this morning. We thank you for your gospel, and I thank you that you've given us um, Edson to share with us from the word. Would you bless him in Jesus' name? Amen. Amen. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, I don't know how many of you get the email, and if you don't get the email, you need to sign up because you're going to miss this joke entirely. Um, But my email had this little story about when I was a kid, and um, I found in the trash a bunch of lipstick that my mom had thrown away, and I decorated myself, and there were some consequences to that. Um, And I was reminded of that story this morning because um, I went to say goodbye to Renda as I was headed out this direction, and she refused to kiss me goodbye. And I'm like, hello, you're my wife, and I'm going to preach today. I need like a goodbye kiss. And she said, ah, I got lipstick on. And if they see that on you, there's going to be consequences. So you need to sign up for the email if you want to know the inside story. Um, We are talking about a subject this morning that, um, first of all, is astounding because we're going to be looking at a psalm. It was written by David about a thousand years before Christ. And in it um, is this prophecy about the crucifixion. Um, And some of the words that David uses are so startling um, in their description of the crucifixion. It's almost as if he was standing there writing about it. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through. Um, but I was struck by the, the cry, and we'll start, we'll start with this verse shortly, the cry from Christ about his relationship with God. Um, and I realized many times I've had that same question. Uh, and the question is, has God forgotten me? Has God abandoned me? What's, why am I not with, why isn't God talking to me right now, taking care of me? Um, And so that's what we're going to talk about, Um, but we're going to go through uh, quite a few scriptures, Um, and I realized that the way to understand this psalm was not just to um, talk about the idea of prophecy and how it's amazing that that God is able to tell us what is going to come a thousand years later, Um, but this, this psalm is a psalm that Jesus used these words from the cross as he was dying. And there's a lot of reasons why he did that, um, and we want to kind of understand that. So that's what we're going to try and do this morning, is to see it through his eyes, through his life. I was thinking about times when I felt abandoned, and um, this story um, came to mind. Uh, I grew up in Africa, many of you all know that. My parents were missionaries, and... um, As a part of that, I climbed Kilimanjaro quite a bit because my school was on the foothills of Kilimanjaro. And when I grew up and got married, I wanted my family to have a chance to climb Kilimanjaro with me. So we went out to Tanzania, uh, took my older kids with me. Renda stayed down and and babysat Edson and some of the other younger kids. And so we were climbing. And... um, we were doing really well, and um, 
things were fun. And just like you can imagine a, a dad with his kids having a great time hiking and climbing. And um, we hit 12,000 feet and I noticed that I was getting sick with some kind of a respiratory infection. Uh, and there's a nice little sign that tells you not to go that high if you have a respiratory infection, which I ignored. And things were getting a little bit worse for me, but everybody else was having a great time. And as we climbed to 15,000 feet, I really realized I was running out of uh, strength. And we got to the third hut, 15,000 feet. The peak is 19,000. And um, everybody else laid out their sleeping bags and kind of started relaxing and trying to catch a little bit of rest before you start the ascent at midnight. And I realized I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get enough air. I couldn't slow down my breathing. Even just sitting and resting, I couldn't get enough air. And it was getting worse. And there's no, like, you know, emergency room next door. It's just kind of, that's all you have. There's no oxygen bottles available on Kilimanjaro. It's a third world country. And as time went by, just about an hour, I sat there trying to rationalize and think through what was going on. I realized I needed to go down. I needed to get out of that environment. Um, so I went and I found our guide uh, and said, you know, I think I need to go down. And then there was this very tearful goodbye with my kids um, because I wanted them to go ahead and have the chance to climb. And I was the only adult besides our guides that was there with them. So we talked about it. They agreed they would go on with the, gu with the other guides. The chief guide would take me down, said our goodbyes, and we started down. And this, at this point, it was about, oh, about 6 p.m. Um, and so we're going down, and I'm struggling. Um, we're at 15,000 feet. Even downhill is difficult. I'd walk a little bit and stop and try and breathe, and walk a little bit and stop and try and breathe. And it was just really hard and getting harder. And at one point, I just couldn't go any further. And I just kind of lay down on the ground. And the guide tried to encourage me, tried to help me get up, tried to help me walk. I just had no strength left. I couldn't do anything. And he said, well, well we're going to have to try and get you down somehow. So I will have to go back up to the third hut and get a stretcher. And I'll come down and we'll help help you get off the mountain in a stretcher. And so I tried to acknowledge that. Um, at about that time, there was a porter that came by um, that was actually carrying some of my stuff down because I was going down. And so my guide said, here, you stay with him, keep an eye on him, I'm gonna go up and get the stretcher and I'll come back down and we'll get him off the mountain. Well, as I started getting sicker and more desperate, the porter who didn't speak any of the languages that I spoke, not Swahili or English, panicked, he got afraid. And all of a sudden, he just stood up and ran down the mountain and just disappeared. And I remember seeing him leave thinking, that's not good. He just went from bad to worse. And I laid there and was just kind of thinking about, this isn't going well. And then the sun went down, and the temperature dropped. As you all know, here in Alaska, when the sun dropped, when the sun is gone, the temperature just plummets. And so I was about 14,600 feet with no one, and 
cold and I couldn't get enough air to have enough energy to stay warm and I was getting colder and I couldn't breathe. And I remember thinking, it's over. This is, this is it. I've been left here and all my kids are gonna have no idea and my wife will have no idea and I'm just gonna die here. I felt abandoned. We'll get back to that story. <laughs> yeah, I know. We'll get back to it. It'll be okay. Um, this psalm, Psalm 22, if you want to open to it, uh, we won't have time to read the whole thing. We're going to go through some of the verses. Um, the first verse, everyone I'm sure has heard before, at least most of you have, and the first verse goes like this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And as I said, in order to understand this psalm, I want to go through the life of Jesus and sort of see his relationship to this psalm. Um, rather than looking at it from a theological perspective, I wanted to try and see it through the eyes of Jesus, and I want you all to come with me in that journey. Because although I was feeling very abandoned on that mountain, um, I have to say this psalm is talking about a different kind of abandonment, a much more, even more desperate than just my own life uh, sense. So we'll just start out with the beginning of Jesus' life. Um, he was 12 years old. Every year his parents took him to Jerusalem. They would have a big festival, a big feast, um, celebrate who God was, and then head back to where they lived. And this particular year, when he was 12 years old, he went to the temple and he started learning from the teachers. He had probably heard Psalm 22 before, but I think at this point in his life, he really was beginning to understand um, who he was and what was coming in his life. And he was desperate to learn the scriptures and hear um, other people teaching the scriptures and for himself to be reading them and studying them and memorizing them. And I have no doubt that even at this age, he knew because he was God that this psalm meant something about what was coming in his life. It's a bit of a humorous story because his parents, like, you know, there's a whole bunch of them that go, they do this every year, and they all left. And they, they're a day out in their journey, and they're like, well, where's Jesus? And they start searching for him in their camp, and he's nowhere to be found. And finally, they have to go back to Jerusalem looking for him. And when they find him, they're a little irritated with him. And, of course, you may have heard the story. He says, well... Why were you looking for me? Of course, I'm in my father's house. And they didn't have really understanding what he was talking about. And the next verse tells us that he returned with them and he was very obedient and good and well-behaved. Um, not that he wasn't at that time because he was just pursuing something he was, he was called to. Um, but you could tell there was some irritation with his parents. But I think about what would it be like to be 12 years old and start to understand that your life was headed to the cross, that your life was headed to um, 
being beaten and to die on a cross and start to realize that that's, that's what you are there for. Um, and he's God, but he's also a 12-year-old boy. What did that mean to him? There's a lot of stories. We could go through many, many stories. Um, I think about when um, he called John the Apostle to follow him, knowing that one day he would say to John, uh, take care of my mom as he was on the cross. There's another one here. I like, I like this one. This is a wonderful story. He was, uh, had started his ministry um, and crowds were coming to him and he was healing people and he had become very popular. Everybody wanted to hear his teaching. And so he's in a home and he is teaching and it's packed. Everybody who can get in is in. There's standing room only. Everybody's super excited to hear Jesus teaching. And so when you hear that Jesus is around, you take anybody that's sick to him because that's the only place there's any hope. So there was a group of friends who had a friend who was paralyzed and they decided they wanted to take him to Jesus. So they show up, but they can't get in the house because it's too full. And they're clever people. So they decided they would climb up on top of the house, pull off the roof and lower this guy down to Jesus. <laughs> I can just see the scene. Everybody's like listening and all of a sudden there's a hole in the roof and this uh, paralyzed guy is lowered down through the roof. The verse says, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, you're healed. Nope, that's not what he said. He said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Now, that was sort of an odd thing to say for everyone that was listening, but the Pharisees instantly knew that was unsettling. No, 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 no. You cannot forgive someone else's sin. Only God can do that. And Jesus knew what they were thinking, and he said, well, you know, you may say, I'm not allowed to do that because only God can do that. But what would you say if I said, you're healed, get up and walk? And that he said that to the man and he was healed and he got up and walked. His point was, you have to be God to do either of those things. And of course, the Pharisees, that's when they started thinking about rejecting him. But I think about this. When he said that to that man on that mat, your sins are forgiven you, he knew that couldn't happen unless he died on that cross. He knew that what he was saying and what he was doing required that he complete his ministry. So even then, every time he said to someone, you're healed, what he was really saying was, you're healed because I'm going to die for you. He just didn't finish with that part. The woman at the well, famous passage of scripture. Um, Jesus is leaving a ministry where he's near John the Baptist and he's going uh, to Galilee and he has to pass through um, sort of an outlying area. The Jews had some racism against the Samaritans from a long history. And it's a long, hot walk, and they decide they're going to cut through Samaria, and Jesus gets tired. 
And so he says to the disciples, go into town and get us some food, and I'm just going to sit here by this well. And a woman comes up, and he asks the woman for some water, because he's thirsty and he's tired. And so typical of conversations with Jesus, she recognizes that she's a Samaritan, and he's a Jew, and he's a man, and she's a woman, and this conversation probably shouldn't even be happening. And so she asked him, well, how dare, or how are you asking me for water? I'm a Samaritan woman. Why are, we even, why are you even acknowledging my presence? Such an interesting conversation. And what does he say to her? He says, if you knew who I was, you would be asking me for living water, water that never stops flowing, and you would never be thirsty. But he's the man who's going to be on the cross parched for thirst, his tongue swollen in his mouth so that he can barely breathe, sticking to his teeth because he's so dehydrated. And yet he's the one who's offering living water. And the only reason he can offer living water is because he knows that's coming in his future. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. How about the man that was paralyzed for 30 years laying next to the pool? Uh, it's called the Pool of Bethesda. It's in Jerusalem. And every once in a while, this pool had a reputation for being able to heal people. The water would be disturbed by something, presumably an angel, and the first person who could get in the water would be healed. So this poor man had been staying there for 30 years, trying to be the first person in the pool, but he was paralyzed. He couldn't get to the pool in time. So he just kind of stayed there, begged for alms, um, and that was his life. And Jesus came up to him, and this was kind of an incognito story. Jesus showed up without his entourage, just nobody really knew who he was. And he said to this man, uh, this is John chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Now, if we were looking for humor in this story, that would be the humorous line, right? Paralyzed for years and years, living a life of utter poverty, and somebody walks up and says, hey, do you want to be healed? And you're like, well, yeah, of course. But it's interesting, his reply is, he just assumes Jesus is talking about the water, the pool. And he says, well, I, you know, I'd like to be healed, but I can never get there in time. Somebody always beats me. And Jesus says, you're healed, and heals him. And I think back to that psalm that we're look, trying to understand and look through the eyes of, and what Jesus is saying, because he knows also Isaiah, we're going to hear about Isaiah next week, I'm going to be scourged with a whip. It's going to tear my flesh off my back, and by my stripes you are healed. This is one of my, one of the stories that gets me. Jesus was at the temple teaching, 
very popular. Everybody was coming to listen to him, amazed at what he had to teach. And the Pharisees at this point had realized that this man was a problem, that he was kind of taking over their whole control of the spiritual life of, of Israel. So they decided to plot against him. And they had this idea they would try and trap him and make him look bad in front of, in front of all the other, other people, the populace. So they caught a woman who was in the midst of adultery and dragged her, presumably poorly clothed, and threw her down in front of Jesus because they knew Moses' law was that she needed to be stoned to death. And they knew if Jesus participated in stoning this woman to death, that that would really sort of make everybody realize he was a harsh, mean person, kind of like they were, and that would discredit his ministry. And I'm sure there was some um, desire on their part to do this in public, to embarrass this woman, to embarrass Jesus. Uh, can you imagine the humiliating experience of being dragged out of, of a home in secret and thrown in front of everyone accused of this? And it's, it's such a great story. We've all heard it before. Jesus kind of pauses and they're all, you can just feel the, the anger, the hate, the delight at the predicament they've caused from the Pharisees as they're all around yelling, what are you going to do? Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Why did he say that? Because just moments before, he said to the Pharisees, let the person among you who has no sin throw the first stone. And there was silence. And they put down their stones that they were holding. According to Scripture, the oldest one put down his stone first, and they walked away silently. Because none of them could throw that stone. But there was one person there who could throw that stone based on that question. Let the person among you who has no sin throw the first stone. Who was that? It was Jesus. He could throw that stone. The law said that was her punishment, and he was innocent. He could have fulfilled that statement. But what does Jesus say? Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And I just think about that moment. As he is saying that to her, he's not that far off from being the one condemned. It's coming pretty soon in his ministry. He was condemned so that he could say to her, then neither do I condemn you. Or we could look at Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We know this story really well. This story is actually probably a week or two before the crucifixion. So Jesus is, has a ministry going on, and he gets a message, hey, your friend Lazarus is sick, and he doesn't respond to it. They want him to come, and he doesn't come. And he says to the disciples a couple days later, Lazarus has fallen asleep. And they think, oh, that's great. Maybe he's getting over his sickness. But what Jesus actually means is he's died. So there's this little talk from Jesus about how this is going to be a 
a great thing because Jesus knows what is coming. But when he shows up, Martha comes and talks to him and Martha says, why couldn't you have come earlier? Lazarus is dead. You're too late. And Jesus talks to her about the resurrection and the life and she doesn't really understand, but she does believe one day they will all be raised from the dead and she expresses that to him. He says to her, I am right now resurrection and life. And I don't think she quite understood what he was saying, so she went and got Mary. And Mary comes running out, and this is, this is one of those tender moments in Scripture that really um, you see Jesus' heart. So he knows what's going to happen. He knows the whole purpose of what's happening. And she comes running out with her friends, and they're all sobbing. They're grieving. They're weeping. And the next verse says, Jesus wept. He cried, he saw their grief. And at that moment, he realized that this wasn't just an exercise to give glory to God, but this was real grief, and he wept with them. And then he took them to where the tomb was, and he said, take away the stone. Now, for all of them that were there, and there was an argument about how long he'd been dead and his body wasn't going to smell very good, all of that stuff was happening. When Jesus said that, he knows that he is going to be in a tomb just like that in two weeks with the stone rolled closed. And he knows that what's about to happen, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead, can only happen if he dies and goes in the grave and the stone is rolled across his dead body. So not long after, a couple weeks later, Jesus goes in, it's Palm Sunday, there's all this wonderful celebration, there's the Last Supper, communion, which we have here. Um, and then we stand and see Jesus on the cross. And I'm gonna take you back to the Psalm because the verses from Psalms describe what's happening on the cross. Verse 7 and 8, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Fascinating, the Gospels record the same words, almost word for word, of the crowd sneering at Jesus. Luke says, they said to Jesus, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. And what, did, what was Jesus on the cross for? To save them. He couldn't save himself because if he did, he couldn't have done all those things we just talked about. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Now, this verse is a very unusual verse. Um, prophecy isn't usually quite this clear. And what I mean by that is, when David wrote those words, crucifixion did not exist. Nobody had ever been crucified, at least as far as we know, when David wrote those words. So him writing that Jesus' hands and feet would be pierced is really quite a remarkable statement. A thousand years later, about the way that Jesus would die. It's funny, I looked up um, nails um, 
and piercing and, and crucifixion, these things. And I found out there's only one verse in the New Testament that refers to the nails that were used uh, to crucify Jesus. The word nails is actually not used during the crucifixion. Um, we have to look a few days later after the resurrection and we run into Thomas, and you all probably know the story. Thomas says, I'm not going to believe that Jesus is raised from the dead until I can put my fingers through the nail holes. That's the first time we see that nails were used in the crucifixion. But there Jesus is on the cross, nailed to the cross, and he knows, has known his whole life, that that's where he was going to be. They have pierced my hands and feet. Verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And what was Jesus doing while he was there on the cross, watching the Romans throwing dice to divide up his clothes? Hmm. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lema shabachthani. And what was he doing? He was quoting the psalm that we started with. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's interesting, we think about it. It would be easy for someone like me who likes to analyze things and sort of piece them together and puzzle them together and see the patterns to say, well, he's quoting that psalm. And I think we would miss something if we just went there. Because I think, although Jesus said this because he knew it was there to fulfill prophecy, he also said it because that's the moment that God turned away from Jesus. That's the moment that the person himself God was split in two and could not be together. I've often said one of the reasons why we have a trinity is because love requires a place to go. And so God, the one God, also the three in one, that's why he is love. One of the reasons anyway. Helps us understand what the trinity means. At this moment, they're torn apart. And why? Because Jesus had to take on the penalty of all of our sin, and God could no longer look upon him. I'd like to call up the worship team. You know, as I was lying there on Kilimanjaro, I told you we'd get back to the story at 14,600 feet, thinking that I was about to die. Down below, my wife was taking a nap, sound asleep, at a very nice hotel where they serve tea at 10 and 4 p.m. They have beautiful gardens, it's peaceful, delightful. They have gigantic hot tubs that are fed by a hot spring. All the hot water comes from hot springs on a volcano, it kind of makes sense. And she was sound asleep as I was laying there dying. That might be a little dramatic, but that's how I felt at the time. 
she woke up from a dead sleep and she knew there was something wrong with me and she started praying for me. At that moment, and as I was thinking about Jesus being abandoned by God, at that moment, I was not abandoned. God was looking after me. And I realized that Jesus accepted being abandoned by God so that I would never be abandoned. So, we have to ask some questions. We have to say, why, God, did you abandon your son? And we've gone through some of these answers now. He abandoned his son so that he would never have to forget you, never have to abandon you. He abandoned his son so that you and I could have living water. He abandoned his son so that we could live free from shame. He abandoned his son so that we could be healed, healed of our sin, healed of our debt, sometimes healed physically. He abandoned his son so that your sins, my sins, could be forgiven. He abandoned his son so that we could have life forever with the Father. So I might ask the question, you might have heard all this and you might say, you know, I don't see any way God can get through to me. My life's too messed up, I've done too many things wrong, and I'm pretty sure there's not a solution for my life. So I'd ask the question, how close are you to living water? How close are you to freedom? Nah, there's no way. I hear that, that all makes sense. I'm glad that works for some people, but that's really not, I don't think that's gonna happen for me. And I would answer you and I would say, you're only one prayer away from that grace because you're the kind of person that Jesus died for. He didn't come to fix the people who have life altogether. He came to fix people like me that are all messed up, where life is hard and miserable and we've, we've done all the things wrong and it's not going well. I know some of y'all have heard my testimony, my story. I've been through some wrong turns and I'm just thankful Jesus came to fix those for me. So I want y'all to pray with, pray with me. Um, and if you've never met Jesus, this is your chance. You're just one prayer away. Let's pray. As you hung there on that cross, Jesus, I know that you thought about me along with the millions and millions of people that need your salvation. We thank you for leaving your glory and becoming a person, for being born and living as a boy and learning about who you were in your life, for realizing that you were going to hang on a cross, dying a horrible death just so that we could be free. 
thank you. And if you've never prayed this prayer, I just invite you to pray with me. I believe in you, Jesus. I believe in your life and your death and that you rose from the dead. Forgive me for my sin. Give me your living water and life forever with you. Amen. You know, it's kind of cool. We talk about prophecy, and we generally, I think, for most Christians, think of prophecy as something that happened long ago or that is going to happen in the future. You know, so it's either like prophecies about Christ and his life, or it's prophecies about revelation and the end times and tribulation and a lot of different sermons than today. There happens to be a verse in this psalm that is a prophecy about us today. And it says, Psalm 22, verse 31, they shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. And we can rejoice because he has done it. He has paid the penalty. And when we talk about God meeting us here in our services, this prophecy predicts that that will happen. And we today are a fulfillment of that verse. So there's four ways to respond. Um, if you've never prayed, or you just prayed for the first time to say, Jesus, I believe in you, I'd like to welcome you over to, I have some friends that are gonna be over there, right over there by that sign where I stand sometimes, and they'd love to pray with you. And if you have anything else you need prayer over, healing, a difficult situation, a struggle, any kind of pain that you have, they'll be happy to pray with you and spend some time with you talking. We have communion. Jesus took the bread and he broke it, his broken body. He took the cup and he offered it to them to drink, his blood poured out for us. And then he commanded us, do this in remembrance of me. And then gratitude. If you want to say thank you to God, leave an offering. There's lots of, lots of places to do that. And then, my favorite part, as we get to worship God and praise Him. Thanks, Edson. You want to go ahead and stand with me in worship? That was wonderful. So, um, Edson said, I need to hear the end of the story. So here's the end of the story. Shortly after Renda prayed for me, they showed back up with a stretcher which is a bicycle wheel and a bed and six guys to carry you down. And they jokingly said, you want to get on? <laughs> so they put me on that stretcher and took me down to 12,000 feet where I could breathe again. And then the next day, my kids joined me. We went down and I got some antibiotics and got over my pneumonia. The question that we need to ask those of us that we meet this week want to be healed? Do you want to hear the message of salvation? Do you want healing? Do you want living water? Let's take those words and share them with the hurting outside of these walls. We don't finish till 1230. We'd like you to help clean up if you have the time. Stay and visit. Happy Sunday. A joyous day for all. God bless. Amen.